0: Show me the way to oh, I'm taking my time on my right. These aren't my favorite songs. They're not even necessarily the best songs, but rather my life as a playlist. Nobody enjoys failing, but for those of us with atikophobia, that fear can stop us from achieving our goals or even planning for the future at all. While there are many causes for atikophobia, the most common is having critical or unsupportive parents and the second is experiencing a traumatic event that has become such a painful memory that we return to it, either consciously or subconsciously. That running soundtrack in our mind that lies to us and tells us who we really are is who we were in that horrible moment, and not who we actually are and have been the other 99.9% of the time. For me, I think it's a combination of both, along with the genetic predisposition for anxiety and depression that has contributed to the hallmarks of my which are a propensity for self-sabotage, low self-esteem, but most significant in my life and the most difficult to manage is the perfectionism that tells me if I'm not the best, why bother? As a young girl, I wanted nothing more than to please my parents and teachers, but doing so felt damn near impossible. Being labeled gifted at a young age was hard. I know there were privileges that came along with it, but I was expected to excel at academics, and when I didn't, I was deemed lazy, when in reality, I had a specific giftedness toward linguistic intelligence. I could read fluently at age three and beat adults at Scrabble by age nine But in the third grade, I hit on my top bunk cowering in fear where my mother's hand couldn't connect with my face after she returned home from a parent-teacher conference where I'd earned an A- in math, along with a note that I didn't follow directions. And as a young girl, I dreamt of being a scientist and inventor. But after failing just one test on electricity, which, if I'm being honest, I still don't really understand, although Miss Stacy did her best to explain it on Anne with an E. Go watch that show. My father told me to cross scientist off my list of potential careers. I grew up in an athletic family. My mother was a high school volleyball champ who played in a competitive adult city league, and my father was a baseball player and weightlifter. One of my younger brothers was a starter in Little League and then co-captain of both the volleyball and wrestling teams in high school, and my youngest brother was the most gifted of all. He was an all-star pitcher every single year even when he moved up age divisions and was the youngest on a new team. He even pitched in Three River Stadium. Then there was me. I loved sports just as much as the rest of my family. I memorized the stats of all the star players on my favorite baseball team, the Chicago Cubs, even wrote a few of them letters and received a very kind letter back, along with a signed baseball from former outfielder Vance Law and I religiously watched my Pittsburgh Steelers every Sunday and contributed more of value to the Monday morning conversations about the games at school than most of the boy classmates did, although they never acknowledged it. Why didn't I compete? I was born blind in my left eye, which meant both limited scope of vision and a warped sense of depth perception, making my hand-eye coordination, or lack thereof, a problem. That didn't stop me in fifth grade from trying out for a school basketball team. Every day after school for a solid week, I showed up and ran drills, practice layups, and by the last day of tryouts, I'd had yet to sink one single basket. Unsurprisingly, I didn't make the team. While it would have been lovely to have someone teach me adaptive strategies I could use as a visually impaired athlete, I realized I was asking a lot of our low paid coach, and also this was the 80s. But beyond that, she disliked me, and lobbied to the school principal that I shouldn't even be allowed to take part in PE, because According to her, I was a danger to myself and others. Seriously, the worst part wasn't not making the basketball team. The worst part was when in looking for solace, I told my father that I didn't make it, and his response was to yell at me for even trying out. What the hell were you thinking? What made you think you could even do that? How embarrassing. While the rejection of my father hurt more than the rejection from the basketball team and coach, I was young and undeterred. Cheerleading tryouts came that summer between 5th and 6th grade. On the first day, we were taught a routine, which we had a few days to practice and then had to perform for the cheer captains and coach. I went home and practiced and practiced and practiced, lived, breathed, dreamt that routine. On the day of tryouts, I performed much better than I thought I would, actually, making the kicks and nailing the splits. Was I awesome? I'm quite sure I wasn't. I was an awkward, uncoordinated 11-year-old girl. But, I left tryouts that day, confident and hopeful that I'd find a spot on the team. When the roster was posted the next week, I rushed out to the school to find my name missing. Of the 11 girls who tried out, 8 had made it. Two were alternates. And me. Not there. I was mortified. Not only did I fail to make another team, I was the literal worst. When my grandma, who was the school secretary, asked me about tryouts, I lied and told her I'd made it. I lied to other classmates, too. I knew I'd be found out, but I couldn't bring myself to face the humiliation. I spent two solid days at the local park, alone, trying to devise a way I could talk myself onto the team before school started that fall. Surely they could use a third alternate on the practice squad. What's the harm? Then I was found out when my grandmother excitedly told the cheerleading coach how great it was I was on the team, only for the coach to tell her she was very sorry, but there had been a misunderstanding and I actually hadn't made it. When my parents found that out, and also that I'd lied, I was told again how I'd embarrassed the family and that I never should have tried out for cheerleading in the first place. I was determined to make my father believe that I was good at something, to make him notice me, and earn that previously elusive compliment. I hatched a plan. If I can make it there, I'll make it My father loved Frank Sinatra, so I got to work on learning every word to the theme from New York, New York, which is the theme song from the Martin Scorsese film New York, New York from 1977, and which hit number 32 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. Liza Minnelli wrote and performed the song in the film. It's one of the best-known songs about New York City, and in 2004 finished number 31 on AFI's 100 Years, 100 Songs survey of top tunes in American cinema. I created a dance routine and even roped my younger brothers into being my background, singers and dancers. As we practiced, I was proud of my initiative and excited to perform. And as I prepared the record on the record player and put on my black tights with my black leotard, which I'd only owned because I'd been a black cat for Halloween the year before, I excitedly called my parents to the living room and sat them down on the couch. And, with all the heart and spirit an awkward 11-year-old girl could muster, the needle hit the record, and the lyrics start spreading the news, start to play. I sang and danced my heart out. As I finished my performance and took a bow, silence. Moments later, my mother said, That was very interesting. And my father said, Don't quit your day job. In shock, I retaliated with, I worked so hard on that because I know how much you like Frank Sinatra in New York City. We'd taken a few family trips there. He responded, So, dancing isn't really your thing either. And I went in my room and bawled. Then he got upset with my bawling and told me, I'd better toughen up because the world's a cruel place. To my mother's credit, she signed me up for local theater classes, and I found some moderate success in junior high, playing leads in several plays, including The Rabbit in The Velveteen Rabbit, Hansel and Hansel and Gretel, The Lion in The Wizard of Oz. It was a lot of fun. In 9th grade, at my private Catholic school, I tried out for the fall play and was awarded one of the main roles, and I was ecstatic I was the only freshman to do so. I'd finally found something I was good at, acting. Fast forward to a year later when I attended a much larger public school, and with my voice changing at age 15, something I erroneously thought only happened to boys. I was chagrined to find that, while I did get a part in the school musical, it was that of the grandmother? Not a lead, not even a solo. What? In my mind, drama was the only activity I'd been good at, and then, I wasn't. What did I do? Be the best grandmother ever in the history of Into the Woods? Work on my vocals to see if I could strengthen or improve them or deal with my changing voice. Nope. I thanked the theater director for the opportunity and went on my way and never acted again. With the first sign of adversity, I crumbled. I've done this over and over again in my life. When I made it onto the school swim team after the season had already started, one of my teammates in the locker room asked me if I was any good. I said, I don't know. I'd swam for a while. My grandmother had a pool I could do laps in. We'll see. When I got winded about 30 minutes into practice and the other girls started to lap me, I was mortified. From the side of the pool, my coach yelled, cheered me on, motivated me to keep trying. At the end of practice, none of the other girls talked to me. Clearly, I was awful. I catastrophized, assumed everyone hated me, and skipped practice the next day. The day after that, the swim team coach, who happened to be my health teacher, asked me where I'd been and told me I'd better show up to practice. Here was a coach who was willing to take a chance on me, and now I'd had my chance to be part of a team, my childhood dream. But after school, rather than head to the pool and face yet more humiliation, girls lapping me again, I went home. If I'd had better self-esteem, I would have just shown up and been the worst, until I wasn't the worst anymore. I wasn't bad. I was slow. I could perform the strokes, the turns. I needed to build stamina. Better times would have come with better conditioning. By the end of junior year, I'd even given up on academics. On my one identity, being the smart girl. Because when you're a three-year-old girl, and you can read sooner than everyone else, and you also know all the world capitals because your father forced you to memorize them, and you're segregated from your classmates doing eighth-grade work in the first grade, you feel special. Alienated weird, but special. But when you're in a gifted program where everyone is as smart as you, or smarter, and you're studying and barely pulling a B-plus average, what do you have? In my mind, I had nothing. And when my parents told me I'd be lucky to get into the University of Pittsburgh with my subpar grades, I shut down. I lacked the persistence to continue. I saw it as an attack on my personhood. And with the University of Pittsburgh, to be honest, what's wrong with that school? All I heard was, not good enough, yet again. So, to hell with it. I applied to zero colleges my senior year. Didn't go to the University of Pittsburgh or the local community college. Instead, I entered an abusive relationship and became a teen mom, because that's what I thought I deserved. With age brought some maturity. Okay, a little. I started college at age 27, determined to make a better future for myself and my three kids. On my first exam in a Psych 101 class, I broke down in tears after getting an 86%, much to the confusion of my instructor, who said it was one of the highest scores in the class with over 100 people in it, including a higher score than the upper division students from UCLA, oops, I'm not sure if that was breaking but no names were involved, who were taking the course for a general credit that winter intercession. I left that day questioning if college was right for me. If the best grade I could get was a B+, and that was after loads of studying, and I planned to major in psychology, clearly I didn't have what it takes. But I had my children as motivation, and I had a husband who supported me, and I refused to let them down. I completed the class with an A, and then got all A's next semester and the semester after that, and that's when the perfectionism kicked in because now I had a 4.0 average to maintain, and being emotionally fragile, my identity was wrapped up in this 4.0. I strategically took courses from instructors I felt I had the best chance to earn A's from, and when it was clear I wasn't going to earn an A in a math course, I dropped it and retook it in a self-paced format so I could make sure I aced every unit before moving on to the next so I could finish with an A, even though it took a full semester longer and even though math was a formality for my major and it would not have been a huge deal if I'd gotten a B or even a C in that class. In my senior year, I petitioned for a grade change from an A- to an A, in a Latin studies class, after I performed poorly on a midterm through an odd fluke of me forgetting information I'd studied and that particular information I'd forgotten being quite central to the major essay question. While I loved and appreciated my college and grad school education, Every semester, I unnecessarily stressed myself out by obsessively making sure I aced every single assignment and test, because if I'd earned even one A- as a final grade, one B+, the charade would be over, and I'd be the child hiding on the top bunk once again. The pit in my stomach, as I awaited the final grades, the end of every semester was torture. But every time that screen of A's popped up, I could release that breath, knowing I had value. I did finish my academic career with a 4.0 and started applying for jobs, incorrectly assuming I'd get them because, well, I had the highest GPA, right? If I was actually the best, then being the best meant reaping the rewards. I was clueless that the only person impressed with my 4.0 was me, and in fact, uh, some others, it was off-putting. And it wasn't until I removed my GPA from my CV that I started to get interviews. Well, my first year after graduation was rough and I wondered if I'd ever land a teaching job. That next year, I did, and I built a solid career as a regularly and fully employed adjunct communication instructor, but I put off applying for tenure-track jobs because of the terror of interviewing. Evaluative situations are so stressful for me, I can't eat, sleep, or focus for the days leading up to it. It wasn't until three solid years of adjuncting that I applied for tenure-track community college positions. I was fortunate enough to land interviews at three colleges. As I arrived at one of the colleges a half hour early, I sat in my car and tried 475 breathing techniques. I tried power posing, stretching. Earlier that day, i had had some calming tea. And when I returned post-interview, playing and replaying in my mind all the stupid things I'd said, all the questions I messed up on, and thinking of the images of every glance of my interviewers who clearly didn't like me, after one particularly brutal interview, I sat in my van and both belted and sobbed to Florence and the Machine's Shake It Out, which hit number one on the Billboard Alternative chart, and was nominated for the Grammy Award for Best Pop Duo Group Performance. A well-timed message, as songwriter and lead singer Florence Welch stated, I wanted to just shake something out, shake out these regrets, shake out these things that haunt you. And I'd like to say I did that. Instead, when I didn't get any of the positions I'd applied for, which is relatively common for one's first year of applying, I lacked the courage to face my fears and undergo the grueling interviewing process yet again. The thought of second guessing how I looked, how I came across, my word choices, what each glance from the interviewers meant, the days of silence that follow only to receive a form letter thanking you for your interest in the position, I can't. So, although by the end of my first year of college I had the dream of one day teaching at a community college so that each student like me, who nearly failed out of high school, who started college long past 17, who wanted to make a better life for her kids, who's struggling to pay the rent, with self-esteem and confidence issues, would feel at home in academia, would discover a love of learning, and learn something new in every single class session, would have a place. I do teach. I do teach. I teach at a community college and have been able to do those things, but I haven't had the courage to try again for a tenure-track position, because even though in at least two of the three positions for which I was a finalist, ended up hiring someone with more experience and at least as much talent, I failed to learn from my experiences and grow. I lacked those educational buzzwords, resilience, grit, and instead attacked myself for my failures. Why am I telling this story? frankly, because I'm embarrassed. While I'm a 44-year-old woman who moved out of my childhood home over 27 years ago, I'm still allowing childhood hurts to hold me back. I'm still defining my worth by quantifiable success rather than managing my fears and trying again. I'm still allowing the voice in my head to control what I do. For example, The entire time I've spent preparing this episode, I've done so not only to a classical music station on Spotify to help me focus, but to my brain telling me, this episode sucks. I'm a failure for thinking anyone gives a damn that a 5th grade basketball coach was less than magnanimous, and that at 44 I still can't manage to take the next steps in my career. I'm embarrassed that well into my 20s and 30s, I lied told new friends and boyfriends how I'd been a junior high cheerleader, rather than the reject, and that I'd been on the swim team when, in reality, I'd quit after three hours in the pool, because I thought it'd make me seem more likable and relatable, when, in reality, I spent most of middle school and high school reading escapist novels and seeking the validation of boys having sex in the woods in cars in motel rooms. And I'm telling this story because I want to release the weight of the lies I've used to craft an identity that's not fully my own, because I want to try and I want to fail and take that failure and place it in a little failure jar and give it its proper space in a dark corner in a small room in my mind where it can exist without taking up any more room than it deserves, untethered from my worth as a human being. I'm telling this story so that maybe one day or one year, I'll set new goals for myself and work to achieve them unbothered by whether I'm granted tangible rewards for my efforts. I'm telling this story because I want us all to reward ourselves for the successes we have rather than minimizing them or devaluing them. For example, I've wanted to share my stories and process my experiences for years in the hopes of both healing myself and connecting with others this summer I started Life as a Playlist, even though the first time I guested it on someone's podcast, I overcompensated with four full pages of notes and had a mini panic attack before I got on the mic. I'm still nervous before each show. Even more nervous when I'm a guest. But I'm doing it anyway. What can you do? When setting goals, visualizations, and visualization boards are one of the most popular suggestions I've read for manifesting what you want, but some research shows that for those of us with childhood trauma, anxiety, and depression, that visualization can sometimes have the opposite effect and increase our fear. Instead, I've found breaking larger goals into smaller goals and having a detailed plan works better. But I'm a Capricorn rising with a triple Virgo in my major planets. That might not be what works best for you. I do highly recommend kindness and rewarding yourself for what might seem like even the smallest steps. When I was 26 and thinking of attending college for the first time, it was a big deal just to fill out a basic online application. It was a year later before I took my first class. As I conclude this week's show, I hope you know you're loved, you're worth it, and I'd be thrilled to know what your goals and dreams and fears are. Follow me on Life as a Playlist on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and let me know. Until next time. Milo's music. What do you love about music? To begin with, everything.